Welcome to Stories That Stick, a podcast series about the stories that shape us. I was standing in history, like the first ever World Cup in Africa, and talking to an absolute legend in Desmond Tutu. Hey listeners, it's Ade here, your host for Stories That Stick. Now on today's episode, I have a good friend of mine, John Devo who's an amazing photographer and journalist who's written for the Metro, Amateur Photography and Wired UK, to name but a few reputable magazines. We speak about how he got into this position and specifically the stories that have made an impact on him. Stories such as Jonathan Liverston, Siegel, Conversations with God and Ready Player One. If you are a new listener, please do know that we start all our conversations talking about death because we truly believe it informs on how we live. And this podcast series is a snapshot on the life of our guest. That said, if you are triggered by the topic, then please do skip roughly three minutes ahead once you hear the page turning sound effect. And last thing before I do let you go, we are now accepting adverts on our show. So if you'd like to advertise with us, please do get in touch by emailing contact at blackticulate.com. Now, without further ado, here's John Devo, and I'll see you guys on the other side. Bye. John Devo, welcome, welcome, welcome to Stories That Stick. How you doing, bro? Yeah, I'm blessed. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. And guys, for those of you who are listening, full disclaimer, John is a dear friend of mine. Yep. So, John, have you heard any of the Stories That Stick episodes? Uh, No, not yet. Okay. (laughs) Guys, you know when I said he's a dear friend? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Look, whenever you post stuff, I share it. I hear that. But the reason I normally ask that question from the jump is because the first question I ask normally throws people off. Well, we speak about the topic death. How do you feel about it? Um, I think I've got a pretty healthy relationship with it. Speak more. Well, I feel like a lot of the, the sadness and uncomfortability that people have with death as a concept is the things that go unsaid. Mm. And last year, as you know, my grandma passed away. Yeah. Full disclosure, my grandma dying was like my greatest fit. Like it's probably the only thing I was really afraid of growing up was losing her. But before she died, I started making the most of opportunities to speak to her and spend time with her. Asked her loads of questions about her life, about my mom. Asked her for advice. Even when she was in hospital with her terminal cancer, with weeks to live, I was sat with her in hospital asking her, is there anything you think I could have done better? Is there anything you wish you could have done differently? I asked her everything I could think of. So when she died... There was kind of nothing left unasked. Yeah. So I think that helped a lot letting her go. And I was there when she died. Like I saw her take her last breath. Mm. Yeah, it sounds peaceful. Like it was a lovely transition that you had that moment and that time to ask everything you needed to ask. Yeah. When you asked her the question, is there anything I could have done better? Do you know what she said? She said, to remember that my strengths can also be a weakness. That was the thing she said. Well, the reason as to why I normally start with death is because I think death tends to inform how we live. Mm. And I'm always curious to know, especially those that I do get on, whether or not they make a conscientious effort knowingly knowing that when they're no longer going to be around, there's a legacy attached to their, their name, their output. 
Is that something you're conscious of? Interestingly, I had a conversation with uh, another friend of mine on Friday, something along these lines about legacy. And because so much of what we do is based online, especially in my line of work, I was asking myself, if the internet was to turn off tomorrow, who are you? And what are you contributing to the community around you? Okay. And so it informs my decision-making in that I try to be there for my friends and my family as much as I can. I reach out to people, even on social media. I tell people if there's anything I can help with, DM me. Like, let me know. I'm here. So I think in my small way, I try to impact my community in that way by sharing things I love, by bringing attention to cool shit. Um, that's what I was thinking about. Fair enough. But I mean, well, legacy-wise, I don't know. If I die, I don't, I don't feel like I... I don't think I'm doing anything significant enough that it would matter if I died. That's interesting because as someone who's brought you on this platform, I do think you're doing things that at least bring joy into people's lives, which is actually something I want to get into. But before we get into that, the way I normally start is, well, from zero to 10, your first decade, your first chapter. John. Who were you? Give me like the family background and yeah, we'll take it from there. I <laughs> I have to admit, I was a pretty crappy child. Um, I'm pretty aware that I, I ruined her life just by being born and by being a really mean kid. And I feel bad about that even to this day. I was arrogant. I was ungrateful a lot, but something happened and I just mellowed out. Like I just stopped being a horror. Well, I definitely want to get into that. But you haven't painted a familiar picture. Your heritage, your family structure, nuclear family structure, where you grew up, etc. Okay. You know, that's what I'm trying to, I'm trying to paint that picture. So to paint a picture, I was born in Roehampton. And at the time, my grandma and mother were living in Battersea. My mom was 16 years old. So it's why I say I ruined her life, because most 16 year olds aren't trying to have kids. And obviously my mom's a teenager raising a child, living with her mum, and they had some kind of a falling out. So she kind of ran away with us and we were kind of, we were, we were homeless for a while. And then I think after like a year and a half, when I was about five going on six, we got a flat in Labrador Grove in Manchester Drive. And I lived in that flat until I was like 17. And I live across the road from there now. So I live in exactly the same area that I grew up in. And your heritage. Like my mom, uh, she's from Barbados and England and was adopted by a woman from Ghana and a man from Togo. And she was raised Ghanaian. She was taken straight to Ghana as a baby, lived there until she was 13. And her identity has gone in and I was raised Ghanaian as well. John, just want to get that straight, yep. if I may. Is your grandma an adopted grandma? Yeah. So your mum doesn't know her biological parents? She knows who they are, but she doesn't have a relationship with them. Yeah. No, I get that. And during this time and during this decade, how was she equipping you to become, and dare I say, a man? Because it sounds like your father wasn't around, you know, what was masculinity like as a construct or a conversation and specifically being a black man? Well, my dad wasn't around because he didn't actually know my mum was pregnant. She kept it secret. So she didn't tell anyone and then lost touch with my dad anyway. So they, he just never knew. So there's a couple of things that I guess define the relationship that I had with her and the way that she'd speak about stuff. 
in that you have to remember, like I said, she was 16. So we grew up together. Mm. She didn't know how to parent. And I feel bad saying it now, but I used to say it a lot and throw it in her face when we were younger. But she wasn't really a parent as such. Like a lot of the time she felt like my sister and my grandma felt like our mum because my mum isn't old. Like I've got friends her age. So we've always been quite close and the dynamic hasn't always felt very parent-child-like. Hence your unruly lack of discipline behaviour. Yeah. For those of you who might be coming to this brand new, what I tend to do with all my guests is asking them the funnest stories they heard or read as a child, a teenager, an adult. And do you recall what you submitted to me, John, as a child? Uh, yeah, my favourite book, Jonathan Livingston Seagull. It was a book that my mother gave me, and it's about a seagull who is obsessed with the idea of perfecting his flying and wants to know everything there is to know about flying. And because of his obsession with being incredible at this particular thing, he gets ostracized by the other seagulls and they're like, you're crazy. And he becomes uh, a lone wolf or a lone seagull, if you will, and continues to explore flying and, and test his skills and push himself. And then he ends up coming across two other birds and they introduce him to this new dimension that's like beyond this world. It's kind of like, in the book is kind of proposed like heaven where he can be his fullest self and be even better than he ever was at flying. And I just loved the idea of it. And I guess I saw some of myself in his character. And his name was Jonathan, so it helped me relate. I don't know, maybe my, I guess my mum saw the book and was like, this is my child, he should read it. And she was right, clearly. What was it at that point and that time that you were trying to perfect craft-wise? I was really into Michael Jackson. Uh, a friend of mine and I would dance to Michael Jackson and perform at like local shows. And I tried tap dancing, but I was terrible at it. Absolutely terrible. I, I tried, I went to two classes and I was like, screw this. I'm never going again. Cause I didn't like doing stuff I sucked at. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. I want to segue into our next chapter, which is our next decade from 11 to 20. And this is a huge decade in anyone's life because you're going from prepubescent to full-fledged adult, allegedly. Yeah. So, John, talk to me. Who were you at this time? What were you thinking career-wise? You know, just paint some pictures. Well, that part of my life... Well, actually, my whole childhood was awesome. Like, I had a great time. Even, like... Being poor and stuff didn't bother me. Like my mum made sure I had a good childhood. And in secondary school, that just escalated. You know, I got into singing and I'd never planned to be a singer. I didn't even consider myself a singer, to be honest. But a couple of friends of mine heard me singing and asked me to join and perform with them. How old were you at this time? I think 14 going on 15. Okay. And I just fell in love with music production and songwriting. And that took over, I'd say, like 80% of my time at school. Right. And I figured my future would be singing or writing songs. And I didn't really think about college or university from then on. Oh, really? Well, I, I kind of wrote those things off anyway, because living with a young mother who couldn't afford for me to have a gap year, like some of my posh friends in Kensington and Chelsea, 
So I'm going to have to work from 15 as soon as I leave school. That's it. And I can't expect my mum to have to pay for my lifestyle as a teenager. And I have the luxury of swanning off to college or university. So that that wasn't going to happen. But um, yeah, music was kind of it in my teens. So music was your career ambition? Yeah, I was, I was making money. We, we got signed to a management label who was actually managing... Do you remember the group Big Brothers? Yes. Yeah. Yes. He was managing them as well. And that made music a, a viable profession. We got a... From that, we got a publishing deal. And we were making money doing shows, doing like mini tours and tour support. So I was doing okay with music. Like I literally thought, that's me. That's it. This is you. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Which is crazy because it wasn't my plan, but I liked it and I was with my friends. So why not? So what happened? Because that's not what you do now. Yeah. So what kind of happened is the, the group broke up in stages. But that whole time from when I first started singing, I'd picked up a camera quite early on in that journey because people I knew that were getting signed needed photography and they'd seen pictures I'd taken of myself and were like, hey, I like those images. Could you do some for me? And I was like, well, if you pay me. So people started paying me to take pictures and I just kept doing it because it was, it was getting me paid. This was running alongside your music gig. Yeah, I was doing photography. And what was paying you more? Um, at that Not that point, that mattered. I mean, or, or did it matter? No, like I, I, I would never have done photography unless people asked me to do it for a living. Like I wouldn't, I wasn't, I took pictures of myself because I was vain. Like that was it. And so friends of mine would see that and then they'd ask me to like do album artwork for their mixtapes and stuff like that. So it just became a side job. And then when, when my group broke up, I just focused on the photography and that became, you know, more of a, Your, yeah, more of a money earner for me. Now. Yeah, that yeah. was, that was kind of how it happened. Again, not something I ever planned for, but it just, that's, that was, that was what it was. And again, full disclosure, guys, like I mentioned, I know John. So I know that you went to City Uni, right? Yeah. Doing a journalist degree. Yeah. I don't know how that came into the mix and why. Yeah. So let me just, to, to a bit of background on that, my educational decisions. I was working at British Telecom for their internal communications team. And it was my job to, to kind of tell the story of that campaign. And it was called the BT Better World campaign. And it was all about how they believed we could all create a better world through better communications. And one of my briefs was to encourage more people to get involved in volunteering. And I figured intuitively, the best way to get people involved in volunteering was to interview the people that had done it and tell their stories. Sure. And I interviewed the guy who came up with the phrase, it's good to talk, um, Adrian Hosford. And I realized that what I was doing was journalistic. But um, I actually hit a point in my career where my boss, we had like a, you know, when you have pay reviews or whatever. Yeah. I found out in my pay review that I was paid £10,000 less than my nearest colleague. And in my team of six, we were all at the same level. And I was paid £10,000 less than the lowest paid person in the team. And I asked my boss why. And she said it was because I didn't have a degree. So I was like, okay, shit. Right. <laughs> well, I better get a degree and then come back and do my job because I know how to do the job. But if I need to have a degree to get more money in this area, then I'll do that. Mm. Yeah. So I was like, it doesn't really matter what the degree is. She didn't say I had to have a specific degree. So I just thought, let me look at degree courses. What would I actually enjoy spending my time doing? But then while I was looking, I realized that, you know, the project that I'd done for BT, the What's Your Story thing, 
like I said, was quite journalistic. And then when I was looking at journalism courses, I saw that some places were doing journalism with a social science. And City University had a dual BA, which is basically you do journalism and psychology concurrently. So you'd study on both degree courses rather than doing like a journalism plus something. So I, I applied mm. for that, which was ambitious, to say the least. And uh, the lady that interviewed me, Anna McCain, she said that she wouldn't usually have given a place to someone without the UCAS points and without A-levels and whatnot. But my, what do you call the letter that you write to go to, like, to apply to uni? Personal statement. She said that that was compelling and that the work I'd done on the What's Your Story thing showed that I had journalistic instincts and I was going to approach it in the right way and that I could do with teaching. And so I felt super blessed to have that. Yeah. And also I figured that doing journalism and psychology would make me better at writing about people. Millennials have a bad rep. As if we didn't have enough on our plate, from adulting, buying property and navigating our careers, to having uncomfortable conversations about race, grief, and even mental health. These are just some of the things that don't get discussed enough in our community. But we've changed that. I'm Ade. And I'm Bonita, and we host the As Vice podcast, a safe space to discuss the things that don't get discussed enough. Join us every week to get your dose of practical tips, honest conversations, and we're big on giving people their flowers too. The Advice Podcast, available on all major podcast platforms and via advice.com. Advice Podcast. So, John, once again, I'm just going to refer back to what I often ask my guests, something that they read or heard as a teenager. What was your answer? Do you recall? Was it Conversations with God? It was Conversations with God. Okay, yeah. yeah. Again, it was another book that my mum put me onto and... I just thought it was amazing. The book's quite meta. So it's written from his perspective. He's frustrated, he's a writer, and he's having issues with the world and, and all sorts of stuff going on in his life. And he decides to write to God. And the crazy thing is, in this book, he gets answers. And he writes those answers down, and that's what makes the book Conversations with God. I loved it because it was so different to anything I'd ever read before, and the fact that you could do that as a writer. Just go, actually, I'm going to talk to God. And whatever comes back, I'm going to write that down, and that's the answer that God's given me. Let's go into your third and... Well, not your last chapter, because you've still got you a lot get, of life to live. <laughs> I'm definitely not. But you do do a lot, and you do write for reputable magazines, specifically within photography. So I want to go into this third chapter, and I want you to, if you can, join these dots that really, well, really make you the person that you are today. Twenty plus. What was going well, well, on? You know. So I, I, I went to uni as a mature student. So from the age of 21, I think it was 2009, I went to uni. And my plan was to get my degree, go back to working in comms. And that was that. But I fell in love with being a journalist. And then also while I was at uni, 
I got an opportunity. Well, I didn't actually get the opportunity. I took it. There was an opportunity to work at a newsroom at the World Cup in 2010 in South Africa. Okay. And I remember when the World Cup got announced that it was going to be in Africa for the first time years prior. I was like, I want to be there. But then this came up and they said that they were sending some master students to be in the newsroom. And I was like, hang on. I don't care if they're master students. We're the same age. Like, what can they do that I can't? Mm. And they were like, we're really sorry, but it's only open to the master students. And I contacted the person, well, I contacted the person organizing it at my uni, but also the person who was organizing it from South Africa in Johannesburg. And I basically said, I've booked my tickets. I'm going to be in Johannesburg from this date to this date. If you need me, I'll be around. And if there's no physical room, not even floor space for me to work, so be it. But I'm on hand if you need me. And then they emailed back and said, actually, it looks like there is going to be a bit of room and we can sort out your accommodation as well. And you'll be able to work from our newsroom for the whole six weeks. So I was like, cool. That's amazing. <laughs> it was ridiculous, but I just couldn't take no for an answer. I was like, there's no way this opportunity is coming up and I'm not taking part. I just refused. No, amazing. John, you study psychology, you're clearly, clearly, and I think the listeners can also agree, very intelligent. So I'm sure you've analysed yourself. What is it that you think gives you the confidence or the entire, not even entitlement, that's the wrong word to use, but what is it about you, do you reckon? I think there's a couple of things. Partly, I'm not entirely convinced that this world or this life is real. I kind of believe it's more than likely that it's a simulation. So in my head, there's no real rules other than the ones we impose. I just, I don't know, maybe it is an entitlement. I don't believe that no in that context meant no, because they didn't say you can't come because you don't have the skills or you can't come because there's physically no room for you. They said you can't come because it's for the master students, which for me is just arbitrary. So I said, well, cool. Mm. If it's arbitrary, let's make it something else. And that's what I did. Yeah. I mean, it's phenomenal. Six weeks in South Africa during the World Cup. It, it changed my life. Like that moment in time changed my life. 2009 to 2010. Everything else that happened since was because of that. Everything. Mm. You've got to have stories. Um, my favorite memory, I think, from that trip was I was working with um, BBC World, the radio service. And I was in their newsroom on Villa Kazi Street, which is where... Uh, Nelson Mandela used to live and someone ran in and was like Desmond Tutu's outside and I was like come on of course he is sure and they're like no no seriously he's outside so I ran outside with my dictaphone and my camera over my shoulder and he was there like surrounded by South African and Mexican fans because that was the first match of the World Cup and so you've got like this mariachi band <laughs> South African football fans Desmond Tutu outside Nelson Mandela's house I was like this whole thing is a cheese dream like none of this seems real or plausible, but I was right there with my dictaphone in his face while he was talking about how proud he was of the World Cup coming to South Africa and how he wanted everyone to see the rich texture of his country and all this amazing stuff. And the crazy thing is, because I was next to Desmond Tutu, the ITV guys to my left and Desmond Tutu's on my right, I'm, in, I'm there with my, my dictaphone while he's talking to all of us and I'm in the shot. And so I ended up on the news with him and the Sky guy. It's just the whole thing is ridiculous. Like I've, I, there's a, someone had a video of it years ago. It was just one of those crazy moments where I, I was standing in history, like the first ever World Cup in Africa. 
and talking to an absolute legend in Desmond Tutu, you know, an icon of, of culture and of human history. That's amazing. You've obviously graduated. Yeah, after I graduated, I worked at London 2012 at the Olympics covering, running around with my camera, telling stories, um, which is, again, another moment that is life-defining for me and one of my favourite times ever. And then after the Olympics wrapped up, I ended up looking for other writing opportunities and ended up getting a job opportunity with, uh, at Time Inc. for Amateur Photographer magazine. And that was crazy because that was a magazine I used to read as a kid in W. Smith's when I couldn't afford magazines. And now I had an opportunity to write for this magazine that I'd read as a kid. Like, the whole thing was insane. Mm. And that was what pivoted me from just journalism and then combined my previous passion in photography and I was now writing for a photography magazine. Mm. You're still a journalist, obviously. I don't think you can ever take that away from you. You're also part of the Gadgets Boys team where you do consumer tech, you review it, you travel, you take photographies for brands and clients. What's the dream? And I guess lastly, how can we help? Well, yeah, as you know, but as maybe your listeners don't, I work with uh, Tommy, who's also known as Gadgets Boy. And we met through, um, well, we both were working in the consumer tech space and we met going to different events uh, about 10 years ago now and decided to start working together. So we've been pushing uh, more consumer tech reviews and we have a slightly different approach to consumer tech in that we prefer to live with it rather than rush out reviews for the sake of being early. We'd rather be honest and be experienced with the stuff that we're talking about. And one of the other things that we did that's slightly different to a lot of other people at the time is we focused on car technology very early on. And that's becoming a really, really big thing, especially with the rise in EVs and brands like Tesla, you know, really innovating in that space. Yeah. Can I also ask the fact that you're both black men, how does that play with opportunities, if at all? And I don't mean to like angle any sort of agenda far from, but I'm just curious, does being black in a tech world matter? I mean, I think it makes you a bit more, in some ways, more memorable because there aren't many of us. Also, it means that people confuse you for the other three black guys doing what we do, <laughs> which is ridiculous, but it happens. But yeah, I think it does in some ways help because, you know, we're seen as different and brands do want to have more representation in their audiences when they're putting stuff out. So it does help that, you know, we do represent a section of society that they don't typically reach with. You know, especially in the car world, most of the journalists that we work with are in their 50s. They are white. They are mostly men. There are some women, but not nearly as many as there should be. So it helps that we're young and it helps that we're black, I think, because in that world, there just isn't that many people doing it. Mm, yeah, no, I get that. You know, the relationship between the two of us, a lot of brands that we work with say that they actually really like the fact that you've got two people on camera who are informed and have a really good relationship. You know, we're, we're friends and we know what we're talking about. So they actually quite enjoy having the both of us talking and it's led to us having presenting gigs and we're looking to do more of that. And yeah, I mean, to answer your question about what the, the dream or the goal is, I think just have a larger platform, like for Tommy and I to be able to do what we do just on a much larger scale. And I feel like we're working we're focused on the right areas and doing the work that needs to be done to make that happen. No, I definitely, I definitely been seeing your growth. I mean, just as 
part of the WhatsApp group, the pure envy I get whenever I'm seeing you guys with the latest cars going to these scenic places. I mean, God, you guys aren't having pity on us at all. (laughs) (laughs) What was the funnest story you read or heard as an adult and why? I, well, I fell in love with the film Ready Player One when that came out a few years back. Are you able to give us an overview of that or would that be a spoiler? Without spoilers, the premise of Ready Player One is a genius called Halliday has invented a world, Except the Oasis. a virtual world called the Oasis. And in the Oasis, people can be whoever they want. They can be their favorite computer game character. They can give themselves wings. They can look however they want. They can sound however they want. It's like an open world computer game environment. And people access that world through a headset or like a full body haptic suit. And it's just about the story of some kids in that world who are trying to capture Halliday's Easter egg that he's hidden in, in the game. And whoever captures the egg gets the full power of the Oasis and inherits his fortune and that's the story. And it's just, it's a great story just from an entertainment point, but also the world that they depict is one where the class divide is bigger than it's ever been. So mm. it's just an interesting parallels with our world and where I think, where I think we're, we're going. Yeah. And without trying to make too much of a tenuous connection, it's just almost then fitting that you do deal with consumer tech and reviews. So no wonder this story kind of resonates and has made an impact in you as an adult. Yeah. Cause I've seen some of the, I've seen some of the technology that is coming that will make that world possible. I hear that. I hear that bro. Highly recommended. If there was one book you can gift to your loved ones, what book would it be and why? Mm, I'd probably say anything by Malcolm Gladwell. But to say a specific book, if I can only pick one, I'd say Talking to Strangers is probably the one I'd recommend to most people. Because it's a fascinating look at how we talk to strangers and what we bring to those interactions that kind of informs how it's going to go. Even before we've said a word, there's stuff that you carry and stuff that I carry that's going to make sure that either we're friends or we're, you know, sworn enemies. We're bringing that stuff to the table. And this book really unpicks a lot of that. And I think by reading it, it helps people that might not have before gain a new perspective on other people and try and see them for more than what they present. Like try and see people in context. I hear that. Well, John, how can we find you in a world wide web? And when we do, what would you like us to do? So if you are on Twitter, uh, I go by John Devo, J-O-N-D-E-V-O. And on Instagram and pretty much everywhere else, I'm Gadgets John, which is again, Gadgets J-O-N. And yeah, just hit me up. If you have any comments, my DMs are open. If you have any questions about gadgets, I like talking about tech. So just give me a shout. No, amazing. And guys, again, please do follow us as well. And do let us know what you think about this episode because we are trying to be better, better, better. John, once again, thanks for your time. And guys, see you in another episode. Bye. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please do share it. And if you'd like to be featured on the podcast, please do get in touch.
Millennials have a bad rep. As if we didn't have enough on our plate, from adulting, buying property and navigating our careers, to having uncomfortable conversations about race, grief and even mental health. These are just some of the things that don't get discussed enough in our community. But we've changed that. I'm Ade. And I'm Bonita and we host the As Vice podcast, a safe space to discuss the things that don't get discussed enough. Join us every week to get your dose of practical tips, honest conversations and we're big on giving people their flowers too. The Advice Podcast, available on all major podcast platforms and via Advice.com. Advice Podcast. Advice.